Welcome back to our study of First Kings. We're jumping into chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3 tells us the story, really the famous story, of Solomon's wisdom. If there's one thing uh, that Solomon is famous for, it's probably his uh, exceeding and unusual wisdom that was granted to him by God. And so we're going to read about that story uh, tonight, see how that happened. And uh, then, Lord willing, next week we'll see... Uh, one of the examples of Solomon's wisdom. So let's just jump in. First Kings chapter three. We're going to be looking at verses one to uh, one through fifteen. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is verse one. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Now let's pause there. What's happening so far, of course, Solomon has become king, and we saw in chapter 2 how Solomon's reign was established as he dealt with various individuals and issues that had been left over from David's reign. Now that those have been dealt with, Solomon's story can move forward, and uh, here we read about his marriage to a daughter of Pharaoh, um, and uh, we might, you know, ask ourselves some questions about that because we know that there are at least some prohibitions against marrying foreign women in the Old Testament, women outside of the nation of Israel, and we also know that Solomon's ultimate downfall had to do with some of the women that he married. So right out of the gate here in chapter 3, we might be wondering, is this a bad thing or a good thing that Solomon married this daughter of Pharaoh? Well, uh, while it is true that there are certain nations that the people of Israel were not supposed to um, marry, at least early on, um, it is also true that there are several significant marriages in the Old Testament to women outside of the nation of Israel that are not frowned upon, but are in fact defended or even rejoiced in. Uh, Think, for example, about Joseph, when Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt and then eventually rose to second in command in Egypt. Uh, He married an Egyptian woman, a daughter of a priest, in fact. Uh, You can read about that in Genesis 41-45. He's never rebuked uh, or convicted for that. Um, there's no indication that that was wrong for him to do. Uh, Moses married a Cushite woman. In fact, there was a dispute about that. Uh, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 12. But um, Moses was uh, defended by God um, regarding that marriage. And then of maybe most famously, Boaz married Ruth, the Moabite woman, um, an an outsider to Israel who had returned uh, to Israel with her mother-in-law, who had taken shelter under the the shadow of the wings of the Lord Almighty, the God of the Jews, uh, the one true and living God, and she married Boaz. And from the uh, marriage of Boaz and Ruth, as we read in the book of Ruth, came David. And so... um, it's not the case that all marriages to women outside of Israel were wrong or condemned or sinful. 
that's just not true. Uh, now, if you if you read in um, Exodus chapter 34, verses 11 through 16, there were certain nations that the law f- uh, forbade the people of Israel from intermarrying with. Uh, also, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, the law specifically regarding the kings of Israel that would that would come in the future, like Solomon and, and David and Saul. Um, that law forbids them from taking many wives, um, but none of that makes uh, none of that says that Solomon marrying the daughter of Pharaoh was wrong or sinful or sort of the beginning of his downfall or anything like that. Egypt is not listed among the nations in Exodus 34 uh, that the people of Israel are not to intermarry with. And so uh, there doesn't appear to be anything wrong with Solomon marrying this daughter of Pharaoh. As as, uh, strange as it might seem to us at this point in the story, because of the Israelites being delivered from slavery in Egypt, and because of what we know about Solomon's problems later that stemmed from uh, marrying foreign women who worshipped other gods, and other things, um, there are cases where it is acceptable and celebrated, and uh, this does not seem to be one of the instances where it was wrong. So um, he marries his daughter of Pharaoh, but we also see in these first two verses that so far the temple has not been built. That will be one of Solomon's crowning achievement achievements, if not his ultimate crowning achievement, uh, building the temple of the Lord as God promised. Uh, David that one of his sons would do. So there's no temple yet. Um, and that means, verse 2, the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So though the ark of the Lord had already been brought into Jerusalem, as we'll see later, uh, there was no temple yet. And so the people seem to have been uh, practicing a more um, free form of worship, if I can put it that way. They, they were worshiping wherever they saw fit instead of in a centralized location as they would later once the temple was built. Um, and this is not ideal, but at least at this point, it seems like they are worshiping the one true God at the high places and not idols or false gods. So that's good but is is not ideal. So that's sort of setting the stage for us. There's no temple yet. The people are worshiping in different places, and Solomon has taken uh, the daughter of Pharaoh as wife. Then let's go to verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Let's let's pause right there. Okay, so notice what we're told about uh, Solomon in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord. Okay, doesn't mean that he was doing everything right. Doesn't mean that he was perfect. But at this point, his heart is turned toward the Lord. He loves the Lord. It says he was walking in the statutes of David, his father. So he was doing the right things. He was doing uh, the things that God called him to. He was walking in David's footsteps. David, remember, was a man after God's own heart. And 
only, it says, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places, meaning that was probably not the best thing to be doing at that point. Um, But that does not negate the fact that Solomon did love the Lord and was following in the footsteps of his father David uh, in good and important ways. So sacrificing at the high places is not the best thing, it sounds like, but it doesn't mean that he was not worshiping idols at this point. He had not turned to idolatry, anything like that. He loved the Lord and was walking faithfully in the Lord's ways. And it says specifically that he went to Gibeon, which was the great high place, the, the best place outside of Jerusalem that you could go offer sacrifices. And he used to offer massive sacrifices, right? It says a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And we see in verse five that the Lord appeared to Solomon there in a dream by night. And he doesn't rebuke him. Again, this is, this is not ideal, right? but um, all of us who have grown as Christians and have experienced, um, have experienced the Lord um, ministering to us, speaking to us it, through his word, teaching us, growing us, all those kinds of things, we can look back and see uh, ways in which God was really merciful to us in those, those early days of our, of our walk with Christ because there were probably things that we uh, were still getting wrong theologically, you know, maybe things uh, that we were not that were not the best that we were doing as far as worship, but our heart was turned toward the Lord. I mean, we loved the Lord. We were seeking to follow him, but we were still kind of making some significant mistakes along the way. But that didn't keep God from working in us and mercifully leading us on and, and transforming us and making us more like Christ. And that's the same thing we see here with Solomon. He's not doing everything right, but God still... Um, ministers to him, helps him, etc. By the way, I should say here, there's a book that um, has been helpful to me um, studying through First Kings so far. It's a little commentary by a guy named Dale Ralph Davis. He did commentaries on uh, Joshua and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and I just love his stuff. And so some of the things that I'm saying are, are like what I was just mentioning just now. That uh, was sort of a direction that he pointed me in through his comments, um, thinking about how God showed mercy to Solomon in this situation. So I, I've benefited a lot from him. And if you uh, want to go a little bit deeper into First Kings, uh, in addition to uh, this Bible study, I would really encourage you to get his commentary. They're not expensive and they're not super technical, but you can tell he knows what he's talking about. But he writes, a com- he writes commentaries like, a pastor scholar like he knows the text really really well but he also knows how to apply it and how to preach it and how to bring it home it's really good okay so just got to give credit where credit's due so um god speaks to him uh, at gibeon all right then um verse and he says to solomon what ask what i shall give to you all right now at this point i want you to think about all the stories out there um where somebody is granted three wishes. And this is not the same thing that's going on here, but there's all these stories, right, where someone's granted three wishes. A genie shows up or, you know, whatever. And somehow they get to wish for three things. And think about how those stories go. Those stories ever go well, at least at the beginning? How's your first or second wish usually go? 
usually shows that you don't really know what you're asking for and you don't really know what you want or what you need. And so think about that when you think about God appearing to Solomon and saying, ask me for what you want, what you need. Ask what I shall give to you. How would you answer that question? Right, and I would love to have what? Um, would it be a family thing? Would it be a, a money thing? Would it be a health thing? Would it be what would it, what would it be? If God were to say, "I'm here to give you something," what do you want? What would you ask for? Well, look at verse six. It says, "And Solomon said, "You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father." Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. All right, so Solomon begins his response with um, praising God and saying, God, you have been so faithful. You have shown such loyal love to my father David. He, he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, uprightness. It says, David honored the Lord with his life. He made some big mistakes, but when he did, he repented. Right? And, and um, so he, he honored the Lord. And, then, and he says, you have kept for him this steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. That's verse six. So you, you have loved him. You've been faithful to him and you've kept your promise to him. Remember that big, big, big promise in second Samuel seven, what we call the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David, that he promised that David would have a son sitting on his throne forever um, and that his kingdom would be established forever. And so he says, you have, you've kept that promise, right? Uh, you have put me, one of David's sons, on his throne, just like you said that you would. Now Solomon's not going to sit on that throne forever, right? The, that promise is ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus, but Solomon is the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. And, um, and so then Solomon says, so I'm king now. You have made me king, verse 7, even though I'm just a, I feel I'm just a kid. I'm a little child, he says. I don't know how to come out or come in, which probably is uh, a way of saying, like, I, I don't know what a king is supposed to do. I, I don't know how to rule. I don't know how to do this. And he says in verse 8, I'm in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So this is your people. And um, one of the things I didn't pick up on when I first read this, but it's so obvious to me now, Dale Ralph Davis pointed this out in verse 8, that uh, we have uh, a reference or what we call an allusion to the promises to Abraham there at the end of verse 8, that the people are... Uh, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Remember God's promise to Abraham that your people would be 
as numerous as the stars in the sky, you know, count them if you can, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So God has kept his promise to his people that he made to Abraham. He's kept his promise that he made to David about putting one of his sons on his throne. And here's Solomon in the midst of this great people that God is working in, that God has chosen, that God is fulfilling his promises in. And and Solomon just says, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm like a little kid. And so here's what he asked for, verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? So this is where Solomon asks for wisdom, right? He could have asked for any number of things, but he says, What I need the most, what I want the most, what I'm asking for from you, God, is help to know the difference between good and evil. Help to know how to lead your people, govern your people, care for your people, shepherd your people. I need wisdom. I need your help to be able to see things rightly so that I can act rightly. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the ability to see things rightly, the way God sees them, so that you can and do act rightly, the the way God would have you to act. Um, Now, all of us can ask for this same thing. James 1.5 is a great verse uh, to be familiar with if you're not already. James 1.5 says, um, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. I think this might be like the King James Version-ish. Let him ask of God who gives liberally, liberally to all without finding fault. In other words, if you recognize you need wisdom, ask God for wisdom. God loves to give wisdom. So ask him. If you don't know what to do, if you don't know what to think, if you don't know how to act, if you don't know how to respond, this would be a this it would be really good to be a, a regular part of your prayer life throughout your day and day after day. Just, God, give me wisdom. Help me know what to do. Right? Um, and so we can ask for this too. And also, uh, it's helpful to, to think about the fact that this, this prayer of Solomon's points us forward to the coming of Christ. We've already said that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise of putting one of David's sons on his throne to reign over his kingdom forever. We know that that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so we know that not only David, but also Solomon, those two men, those two kings point us forward to Christ as well. And Solomon, in particular, points us forward to the wisdom of Christ, the wisdom of Jesus, God the Son who took on flesh and became man. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, it's speaking of Christ and it says of him, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you want to know wisdom, you want uh, to have true and sound knowledge, You can find that in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him because He is the truth. Um, It also points us forward to the gospel. In in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how the cross, the death of Jesus, was um, a stumbling block for the Jews. It was folly to the Gentiles. 
but it was the wisdom and power of God, right? Um, so we should, um, as we're thinking about Solomon's wisdom, right? If we're thinking about his request for wisdom, we should see how that points to Christ. Christ is the ultimate wise king. As Solomon becomes exceedingly wise, famously wise, and yet his wisdom is not as great as the wisdom of Christ, who is the embodiment of wisdom because he is God in the flesh. He is the source of all wisdom. So, um, so let this story point you forward to Jesus, right? Push you forward to Jesus. All right, let's keep going. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So God is pleased, the Bible tells us, with Solomon's request. And um, notice Solomon doesn't ask for the things that people typically ask for in these, you know, sort of three wishes stories, long life, riches, the life of your enemies, you know, destroy my enemies, give, make me wealthy, give me long, long life. Solomon didn't ask for any of those. He asked for wisdom. And so God says, I'm going to give you that. And I'm also going to give you some of the things you didn't ask for. Right. So, um, he says, verse 12, uh, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. So Solomon would be the wisest man who had ever lived, except for Jesus, of course, because Jesus is not just merely a man. He is God in the flesh, the God-man. Clearly, Jesus is wiser than Solomon. But outside of Jesus, Solomon is the wisest man, because God gifted him with this uh, unique and profound wisdom. And he says in verse 13, I give you also what you have not asked, riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. So Solomon was the greatest king of his time. He was abundantly wealthy, as I think we'll see later in our study of 1 Kings. Um, He was honored and esteemed highly and um, rightly so, right? Because again, God had given him unique wisdom and also richly blessed him uh, with riches and honor. And and he tells him also uh, in verse 14 that if you do what I say, if you walk in my ways, I'll, I'll also give you long life. I'll lengthen your days if you walk in my commandments like David did, like your father did. So God um, gives him what he asks for and more. Right? And so he gives him this wisdom. Now, um, here it's important for us to remember, okay, so if, if God has made someone so wise, right, if God has gifted them with wisdom such that God can say, nobody before you or after you, again, except for Jesus, is going to be as wise as you, then if we are wise, we ought to say, I, I want to know what that guy has to say. 
man, if I had the chance, I'd want to be around that guy. I want to ask him questions. I want to, I want to watch him and, and learn from his example, see how he lives and learn how he thinks and understand what he has come to understand. Well, God has given us the ability to do that because through Solomon, God uh, has given us the books we call Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and what we call the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. God inspired Solomon to write those books. uh, And in those books, we find the wisdom of Solomon written down in words that God has uh, given and preserved for us to be instructed by. If we want to know how to live wisely in God's world, we need to spend time in Proverbs. We need, if we want to understand the, uh, the world from God's perspective, right? We need to spend time in Ecclesiastes. If we un- want to understand uh, true, real love, both of this, as it applies to marriage, and marriage is, of course, a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. I think we can see both of those things in Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. So, Uh, God has given us access to this wisdom that he gave to Solomon, and we ought not to neglect it, right? We ought to be familiar with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. Um, And, of course, with the whole of Scripture, right? But in particular, we're thinking about the wisdom of Solomon here. Uh, Lastly, verse 15 says, And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. This seems to imply, and I don't want to overread this here, but this seems to imply that once the Lord appeared to Solomon, though he didn't rebuke him for worshiping at the high place at Gibeah, Solomon seems to sort of adjust his practice a little bit and he comes to Jerusalem, and now he offers sacrifices before the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord. So it appears that this encounter with the Lord, though it didn't, though God didn't specifically address the issue of worship on the high place, seems to have put Solomon on a on a better trajectory where he is now worshiping at what is probably the ideal place at this point, without the temple being built. But the Ark of the Covenant is here, This is, uh, which is associated with the presence of God. And so this is uh, the place that, we, um, that he, that he sh- probably should be uh, worshiping, ideally. And so um, God, through his encounter with Solomon, seems to sort of nudge him in the right direction. And that's what happens to us. Whenever we encounter God through the scriptures, through prayer, through worship, God communicates to us. Most of us are not going to have God speak to us in a dream like Solomon or audibly or anything like that, but God has spoken to all of us in his word, right? The Bible is God-breathed. It comes from God's mouth, and so he speaks to us through the scriptures, and when we meet him in the scriptures, reading or listening or whatever, um, he is always um, nudging us in in the right direction. He is always changing a little something about us. He's always uh, helping correct our course, put us back on the right path. 
And uh, that's his mercy and grace that he again and again and again speaks to us, nudges us, helps us, encourages us. There are not a lot of life-changing, dramatic moments that happen to us. There are some, right? But that's not the norm. The norm is these, these little nudges, right? These little chip off something here, correct something there, uh, etc. Um, and God does that in us because he loves us and he has a plan for us and he's working faithfully to make us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to pray and ask God for wisdom. I encourage you to think whenever you look at the cross, think about how the death of Jesus uh, displays the wisdom of God. I encourage you to think about what the Bible means when it says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I encourage you to seek him and trust him and walk in his ways.